All right, but this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Hard to believe we're wrapping up 2023. We'll have two more episodes of Device Talks Weekly. We'll have today's episode. And next week, Chris Newmark and I will bring you a Newsmakers of 2023 episode. We'll review some of the highlights of the year. We won't be publishing any podcasts uh, during the holiday week. Hope you have an enjoyable and peaceful time with your family. But today we kind of have a twofer. We'll be bringing you uh, an interview that Chris and I did with Bill Hunter. Bill, of course, is the CEO of Canary Health. He's uh, been in the medtech industry for a long time, has seen a lot, and has a lot of great observations uh, that he shares on LinkedIn. If you don't follow Bill Hunter on LinkedIn, you should. Uh, very thought-provoking uh, items and uh, always elicits great comments from the right people. So check that out. So today, uh, Chris and I talked with Bill about one of his recent posts, but we also uh, looked a bit back into his past, uh, how he came to be a, a medtech exec, what Canary is doing that is just so cool. And I learned something that Canary Health is able to do with its, with its sensors that I didn't know it was able to do. So I'm sure you'll enjoy that. And uh, then a little bit of a look ahead and some advice for new medtech CEOs. And then later on, I'll speak with Blake Richards, the CEO of Elucid. Elucid has raised a, a good deal of capital lately to uh, further its uh, software that's capable of, or its services of software that's capable of really uh, enhancing imagery of vasculature and really helping physicians identify uh, the kind of help that patients need. So uh, enjoy talking with Blake Richards, and uh, we'll bring you that conversation after our talk with uh, Bill Hunter. And before we begin this episode of Device Talks Weekly, I want to remind you that Device Talks Tuesdays is happening. This is the last Device Talks Tuesdays of 2023, and it's a great one. We'll be talking about how to get the most out of Nitinol for your medical device application. And I'm going to be talking with Scott Robertson, who's Vice President of Nitinol Technology at Resonetics. And uh, he'll have some slides, but it's really going to be a back and forth, uh, some questions about Nitinol that I'll have. But also, uh, we're inviting you to come obviously, to register and to ask your questions. Uh, Scott's really kind of eager to make this an, uh, an office hours sort of setup where he can answer any questions about Night Null. So this is a real unique opportunity for you to learn about Night Null, and I hope you'll join us. Go to devicetalks.com to register for this episode of the Device Talks Tuesdays uh, episode. And again, this will be our last one for 2023 but we'll be back in uh, the end of January with uh, season 2024, which is actually our fifth season of Device Talks Tuesdays, which is pretty remarkable. All right, without any further delay, now let's get this podcast going. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Welcome to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. We always uh, always enjoy your your posts. While well, you were you were kind enough to participate at Device Talks West, which we we always yeah. love to have Canary Story. But uh, what really drew us to this having this conversation was one of your great posts on LinkedIn. And if folks aren't following you on LinkedIn, they should because you don't just post about Canary. You, you you're bringing your expertise of the medical device industry. Uh, to bear, and you're bringing, I think, some really uh, interesting and provocative uh, points of view on, on where we are and where things are going. So to that end, I think it would be great to understand really completely about how deep your background is 
in the medtech industry. What drew you to the medtech industry and was there even a medtech industry when you were drawn to it? <laughs> Both good questions. Uh, I'm a completely accidental uh, medtech entrepreneur. I, um, I went to med school and my only ambition in life was to be a doctor. Um, huh. And uh, I had gone to grad school before I went to, uh, to medical school and uh, I worked on how blood vessels grow. Uh, that was my incredibly important area of expertise. <laughs> Anyhow, um, yeah. I was giving vascular rounds one day, and I was, you know, describing how this process works. Process called angiogenesis, and that was kind of, you know, avant-garde type uh, research at the time. An interventional radiologist came up to me and said, "Hey, you know, if you could do that on a stent, like." that would actually really work. Um, if you could stop blood vessel, you know, neointimal growth on a, a stent, that would be revolutionary. And I said, what's a stent? Um, and he sat down with me uh, over a, a drink or two, and we came up with a plan to develop drug-coated stent. And, you know, we were going to develop this thing for $250,000. It was only going to take us about two years to do it. And, you know, we were just going to do one program and move on. And turned out it took a decade to do it and about a half billion dollars <laughs> to actually get it done. And uh, I woke up five years later and my, you know, my medical career was gone um, because the company had grown quite large and I, I couldn't be a doc anymore. So that's how I got into it. It was, I, I didn't run home from grade school and tell my mom I wanted to go into med tech. Um, this was just kind of how I ended up here. Well, what, what, and this what, was angiotech. This was angiotech pharmaceuticals back in the nineteen nineties. Yeah, back yeah. in the day. That would have been about. I, I wrote the drug coded stem patents nineteen ninety one. We incorporated nineteen ninety two. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So. So what did did being a medtech executive? Um, I mean, if you're going to be a physician, you've got a certain itch that you're going to scratch by being a physician going to medtech. You can scratch part of that itch, but did it really? Did it? Did it give you? a new sense of what you wanted to do or was it just like, well, I've, I've done this for five years now. I've, there's no turning back. Or did you find that this was something that you're really passionate about? Cause you've, you've been doing it for a bit. So I'm, I'm guessing you're enjoying yourself. Yeah, no, I, I love it. But I, walking away from medicine was, was probably the most difficult decision of my life. Um, I, you know, you, you spend a lot of time getting to that point. Um, and I was, you know, one of those kids, I was, first one in my family to go to college and, you know, my family wondered what the <laughs> I was doing <laughs> uh, at the time, but, you know, angiotech grew really fast. And as you, one day we, you know, all of a sudden had thousands of employees and, you know, the tax extent had 70% of the world market share um, at the wow. time the product launched. It was the best selling medical product in history. So it, it was, it was a really strange time. It was it was just a, an absolute rocket ship. And so, you know, it, it just wasn't possible to go do a shift and then come and run a business of that size. So it was a an obvious progression. Since then, I've actually come really, really like it. I, I love this business. It's a crazy business. That's that's why I write about it. What makes MedTech so so I'm mean, frankly just awesome, you know, yep. versus just the practice. I mean, the just I, I shouldn't even say just the practice of medicine. I mean, the practice of you know medicine is is, is amazing. But I mean, what? Yeah, no, I, I um I call medtech uh, you know the business for scientists with ADD. Um, I, I spent a little bit of time in spec pharma. I, I I ran a public spec pharma company for about 
seven or eight years. And pharmaceutical development is just so long and intricate. It takes years and years and yeah. years. And you might only be able to work on one or two projects your entire career. Uh, MedTech, on the other hand, is much more fast paced. You can get through things you know, faster. You can innovate much more quickly. You can get things on the market more quickly. So it, I love the pace of it. I love the, the ability to intervene quickly to to see an idea from start to finish, it's it's pretty addictive once you get into it. I think that's awesome. I mean, I know you you grew this company back in you know, the nineteen nineties and you know two mm-hmm. thousands. Eventually sold yep. the tech to Boston Scientific. I recall. Yep. Um, you know now you're growing a new company. You know now, and that that's kind of you know the thing that kind of you know like big reasons we're bringing you on here right now is a few weeks ago you had a LinkedIn post like where you're kind of comparing yep. those those two uh time periods and uh what you know you you, you let it off just saying like does does medtech you know need a zempic um so what 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 do you mean by that I, it's funny i I, I must be getting old because I, I got asked to do one of those career uh, retrospectives and and uh, <laughs> oh <boy. laughs> that, that, that was the, that was the origin of the post. You're like I'm not done yet. Hold on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. I, I guess they're getting ready to farm me out. Said <laughs> when I started, I you know I remember when I used to you know get an award for like forty under forty or something, and now you know I'm I'm the old guy, but. Um, I, I thought about it, but, you know, they asked me to tell the story of the two different companies. And when I thought about what it took to build company one versus company two, dramatically different. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, dramatically wow. different. And almost everything about the industry had changed, right? The the size of the investment and the investors and the investment funds, the size of the investment bank, the size of the corporate partners, you know, how they did things, what you did to build a company and license or sell or exit. And it was, I I was actually quite shocked. And as I went through the exercise of, of going through, you know, what we did 25 years ago versus what we were doing now, I, I was actually quite amazed at the evolution of our business do you think we can get into the the details of that but would a bill hunter a young bill hunter would you have left medical school if you were starting a company today is it much harder today that you'd be like you would have been like this is still something i want to do or this is just way too hard i'm gonna i'm gonna be a doctor (laughs) yeah you know, well, that, that's going to hold different complication become being a physician nowadays. But anyway, uh, continue. That, that's a very good question. But I, I, the answer would be a kind of a, a from a different angle. I don't think I'd be asked or allowed to do it today. Um, wow. So I, I think I think when I did it, it was possible. Good point. Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, mostly because the companies were smaller, the projects were smaller, everything was smaller. So you could take an inexperienced person and and let them learn on the job. Now the companies are bigger, the the investments are bigger, the oversight's significantly greater. And I don't think you'd take a 29-year-old kid and give him the keys. Uh, so I think it's dramatically different. Oh, that's a great point. So talk a bit about Canary because it's a different sort of creature than, than Angiotech. Yeah, that was that was the other part that came to mind. The the principle behind Angiotech was that drugs or excuse me, devices got infected and inflamed, and pharmaceutical companies made anti-infectives and anti-inflammatory. So let's put them together and see if we can make better medical devices. So that was the company was really designed to be a bioactive implant company, um, and yeah. the company was designed actually not to make implants, but to make technologies that would augment implants. 
So I'm, I'm fond of saying, you know, kind of old dog, same trick. Um, Canary was very similar. We, we had all this sensor technology. We had all this, you know, AI capability that was clearly evolving. And yet MedTech was stuck in an analog world. And I thought, you know what, this would be a very similar situation. We could bring technologies once again from outside of MedTech and incorporate them into devices uh, to try and make them self-reporting, you know, try and allow them to provide clinical feedback and, and real-time patient management type things. And so very similar yeah. business models. Um, and, and that's why, you know, I, I took on this particular project. And how did you, what was the technology that you built this around? Was it a sensor that you acquired from somebody, something you developed internally? Where, where does Canary's technology come from? Um, yeah. <laughs> a similar, a similar uh, story. You know, I I'm a diehard runner, and I was I was out running um, one morning. Uh, I think I might have even been training for the Boston Marathon at that time. Wow. <laughs> but nice. uh, and I'm I'm looking at my Garmin, and I I said to myself, nobody in the world cares what my pace is, what my cadence is, what my stride length is, but I do. Um, and that information can help me, you know, train and, and do things, know when to push myself, when when to back off, all kinds of things. And, you know, why in the world don't medical devices do that? Right. I mean, we've got all this orthopedic stuff, all these all these metrics I'm looking at on my watch would be useful to a, a patient recovering from total joint surgery, for example. So one of my uh, early uh, employees at, at Angiotech uh, became an old friend as an IP attorney. We, so I called him up and I said, Hey, what's, what's it look like? We, we went through all the IP and, and said, you know, if you're going to put a sensor on a knee or a heart valve or anything, what would it be? And why would you do it? And there was really nothing out there in the intellectual property. I mean, there was a bit of stuff. There's always some stuff, but it was, it was a relatively yeah. field. So we sat down for a year and we started writing intellectual property about all kinds of sensor enabled devices. And then, you know, we just started to build the company. And talk a bit about your bit, your plan. It was just, it's interesting to me that you've got the deal with Zimmer Biomet for yep. their, their knee implant. Um, so you, is, you got, the, yeah, you got the corporate partner. You got Zero Biomet working but, with you, yeah. But is the yep. model to have multiple corporate partners in, in, in different spaces, in the same spaces? And, and how does that work if they're, I mean, they're competitive, they're competing with each other. So they want to have something that's better yep. than the other. Yep. How do you see this technology finding its way into MedTech? Um, because I would think that would be something that these companies would want to develop themselves. Yes. But maybe they can't. Maybe that's where Canary comes in. Yeah, it's it. There's a lot to unpack in that statement. Um, <laughs> Sorry yeah, about that. My, yeah, brain, yeah. my brain just won't disconnect <laughs> from my mouth sometimes. <laughs> you know, we, Tom, we, put we, the coffee down. <laughs> yeah, we we could spend we could spend a, an hour just talking about the the difference in partnerships in the last 25 years. I mean, but uh, you know, one of the things that was important to me as as we started to to do this was to not just partner with a company, be a royalty collector. And, you know, that that was not really what I wanted to do. And I, I we'd done that to a certain extent at Angiotech. You know, Boston Scientific took the technology. We we built the coatings, but they incorporated it and, and, 
and they did most of the work once we got to that point. I thought this needed to be different. We need to have our own product. Um, and our product in this case was going to be the data. Um, so it, it's not that I'm not passionate about the implants. I'm quite proud of, of what we've done and how we built it and all that. But if, if a partner wanted us to tech transfer that, that would be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the data that comes out of the device and, and how one learns from that and monetizes that and uses that. Um, that to me was what we were going to bring. And that would be a product that we would share with our partners. So it wouldn't just be, it would be a, you know, a very synergistic approach to things. And so that's really where Canary was, was focused. And to be brutally honest, I think it's very difficult for a big company to build an entrepreneurial data science team. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're typically younger folks and they are motivated by ownership and stock options and involvement. And it's a different pace and a different world than maybe a large uh, med tech company. And so I thought that was a niche that we could occupy and, and we could actually bring value to the partnership. So I think sometimes we'll we'll partner exclusively. Sometimes we won't. Sometimes we'll build things that we keep ourselves. But but the goal was to generate as much, uh, you know, internally harvested data uh, from medical devices as we possibly could. Now, that was really exciting. Um, you know, at Device Talks West, you, you showed uh, you know something to me on your phone with the uh, the smart knee implant, where it was like <laughs> showing you know someone who you know seemed to be regressing a bit on their knee, but your your analytics were showing they were going to eventually improve, while yep. Yep. someone else it's indicating that they they're not going to improve. So you know they're going to need some kind of you know intervention. Um, I mean that that. that Tell me if I'm thinking about that right. I mean, that's kind of the power of this. Like, this almost sounds like the senses are senses are just a start. Yeah, it it's been really fun to work on, honestly. Um, uh, and one of the major reasons is that you you kind of get into the data science and you don't really know where it's going, so you you get to follow it. Um, we diagnosed our first stroke the other day. Uh, oh. so we had a patient whose gait dramatically changed and the clinical staff from the practice said, Hey, they, they called up the patient and they said, can you, you know, get your wife to take a video of you walking? Uh-huh. So we can take a look at it. And we looked at the video and we said, you know, the reason they're walking differently is because it's hemiparesis patients have stroke. Wow. wow. And uh, I thought that was certainly not what we set out to do when we designed persona IQ, but it was yeah. really fascinating um, part of it. Right. And so, you know, the the data journey, and, and you guys have, have written extensively and followed CGM extensively. It, it yeah. reminds me of CGM, right? Mm. We, we start with a needle stick, right? And, and then we go to continuous monitoring. But, but really, let's be honest, initially, that was just kind of glucose readings, right? And then yeah. you had more continuous glucose readings. So that allowed you to manage your diabetics better. Now you're using algorithms on those glucose readings so that you're predicting what the next eight hours of your glucose is going to look like so that you can manage yourself better with respect to, you know, how you're, you're trending. And I, I think that's what we're finding here too. We, we could measure stuff. That's where we started. We could step count cadence, stride length, range of motion, all that good stuff. Then we could say, okay, now we can look at your gait. So how are you walking? Are you walking normally or abnormally? You know, and that became useful. And then as you get more and more data, you start to predict where that's going. 
right? Because you, you've seen the pattern before and now you can start to anticipate what the next two or three months might, or two or three weeks at this point might be like. And that's where it starts to get exciting. That's that's where the power of, of machine learning and big data starts to come in. You'd, it ceases to be a measurement and it starts to become a prognostic, which is very different than a diagnostic. That's interesting. So you, we'll go back to your LinkedIn post. Yep. You state there, Canary is more advanced than Angiotech is at the same stage, but at this point, Angiotech had gone public on two different markets. Yep. Uh, talk about where today's market as, as and I, and just hearing your story and, and, and Canary's story, I, I, it would be difficult to lump you in as a, or identify you as a typical med tech startup mm-hmm. um, just because of your approach, but still you're of the, yeah. the right size. So what does your path forward look like now versus what it would have 20 years ago? Well, when I asked myself that question, the first thing I I looked at was, okay, what, what did it take to be a public med tech company? Or what did it take to, to sell to Medtronic, you know, in 1998 versus 2023? And, you know, obviously I'm, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but when I think back to, to those meetings and, and those companies, right? I mean, you had to have solid IP. You had to have proof of concept in, in big animal studies. If you're in cardiovascular, you know, you had to have pig studies that were pretty definitive. Um, chances are you had EU approval. So you'd done a small study in Europe and you'd gotten approval. You may have sales, but they were, you know, really for show <laughs> um, uh, to just to, to get out the door. You actually didn't want, you had your first demand in the US, but you didn't want your pivotal you actually didn't want to do the pivotal because your big partner wanted to do the pivotal themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? Boston Psy wanted to do taxes for because they wanted to make sure that it was big and powered and designed well enough that they could market their product once it came out the other end. Mm-hmm. They didn't want some small little company messing around with, you know, and generating data that was going to be hard to explain or, or hard to market itself. And, and so in order to do that, you, you probably, depending on whether it was strictly a, you know, a, a small device or maybe a more complicated one like ours, you know, there you're talking about 15, $25 million in invested capital, right? Your your IPO or your exit was proportionately 10 times that. So it was maybe anywhere from 100 to 250 million were where you you exited or went public with, and and that was how it worked. And, and you had, you know, a lot of serial entrepreneurs who did that five, six, seven, eight times, right? They, they'd build a device, build it up, exit and go back and, and do it again. Um, and uh, that was really what you needed. And you you exited relatively early and, and that's how it worked. Now, I, I think it's it's dramatically different. I mean, I, I think everybody expects $100 million in revenue uh, mm-hmm. before you exit. That's kind of yeah. the magic number. Your bankers tell you that. And, there's, and when you work backwards, so you say, all right, how am I going to get $100 million in med tech in annual revenue? That's a totally different business, right? You have to be really proprietary. You're probably going to invest a quarter of a billion bucks to get there, which is a totally different phenomenon. You need FDA approval, U.S. launch. You need reimbursement. I, I don't think I wow. ever had a reimbursement discussion with a, a corporate partner or a banker. We were still showing you know, our animal models. Mm-hmm. 
so it, yeah. very, very different businesses. And then, you know, of course, the rest of the discussion was why, like, why have we gone from there to there in a relatively short period of time? But I think what is required to have a successful exit in med tech is, you know, the companies are five to 10 years more mature than they would have been um, previously. And you had lamented the loss of the, the I like the expression, the med tech middle class. Yep. What yep. what do you what is meant by that? Who is it, who was in that class? And and it seems to me that we need a med tech middle class because you can't have you can't you can't get from you can't get to where you need to go without going through the middle. Someone's going to be producing new technologies and moving things forward. Yeah, you know, I I I didn't do this, but I think if you went through the exercise of looking at public med tech companies in. 2000, um, you would have you would have seen a lot of companies and, you know, the market caps are different because I haven't adjusted them for inflation. But you, you would have seen a lot of companies with, you know, 400, 500, you know, billion dollar market caps. You would have seen a, a real cluster. I mean, you always had the big guys at the far end, but you would have seen a, 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 a significant group in the middle. And those companies made their living by going to startups and and bridging. So they would they would license in technology at a more early stage. They were more aggressive. They fished further upstream and they would develop that technology. And then they might use that to exit uh, to the larger company. So a lot of them were roll up strategies, right? So they'd go in and they'd say, all right, I may not have a hundred million dollar product that's going to get, you know, Medtronic or Boston Scientific interested. But what I can do is I can get five, 10 smaller products. I can roll them into a, a business unit. And then maybe they go they go acquire that asset. And so for about 15 years, there was a group of companies cobbling together all these things um, you know, into a, more of a coherent business and then selling a business as opposed to selling a technology or selling a product. And what happened was all of them, a lot of them that were successful at it got acquired. So we missed, now we were missing that, you know, integrator, if you will, the, mm-hmm. the, the second first. piece of the puzzle. Yep. That was They're taking- all huge companies now. And, you know, if you're going to sell to them, it's, you know, it's got to be like, you got to have the cake totally baked and decorated and, you know, you ready really to go. I, I, uh, B of A put a piece out yesterday just about that. And they were talking about how a lot of the big companies right now are, uh, in shopping mode and they're they're talking about MA as as a, a big part of their growth strategy and and they listed a bunch of quotes and I, I i was reading them and thinking about what we were going to be talking about today but one of the things that struck me is they're like oh yeah you know we're going to be aggressive you know we we can do some earlier stage deals you know it can be accretive in two years well that that's not you know that's not an early yeah. stage deal um, not for, for a big company, right? And so I think the bar has moved dramatically. I mean, Boston Scientific did a deal with us based on early stage stuff. We spent, you know, five years taking that technology to market. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it, it's just a very different game. It's not better, it's not worse. It's just, you know, the, the rules have changed and I'm certain they'll swing back because nature abhors a vacuum. But right now um, you you have a different, a set of circumstances than even 15 years ago, I think. It just seems to me, how much does that squelch innovation? Because it just, it just seems there's a lot of a lot of people who might have ideas that might actually be really interesting that, I mean, they're yep. just not going to get off the ground. Well, there's a famous saying, right? The 
even when people tell you it's not about the money, it's always about the money. <laughs> yeah. And and so when you start with a a blank sheet of paper and you're like, okay, I've got this really great idea. Going to raise $10 million is very different than going to raise $150 million. Um, and the return expectations, everything, they're just different. Um, and so when you could take $10 million and exit for $100 million, then people could take more chances. They could start with things. They didn't have to go quite as far. And so, you know, you could take chances on earlier stage technologies, riskier technologies. If you're a venture capitalist, you could have a bucket of $100 million of $10 million allocated, hoping that one of them would be the next drug-coded scent and acknowledging that maybe you know seven or eight of them would be complete zeros, but it was yeah. worth now, if you're a billion-dollar fund, you know, you've got to put to work 10 hundred million dollar investments. It's a totally different game. Uh, and I think what you're seeing is that that means that the true Series A's are going into companies that would almost be exit companies from the late 90s. Mm, yeah. Right? So it that's a a real paradigm shift. Um, and the what you have to do to get even to the Series A level is is quite substantially different than it might have been, you know, when I was a kid. I recall your hope. There's at least a bit of hope because things are kind of coming around now in the cycle. And you know, when you were making that a Zempic reference yep. in your LinkedIn post, it was kind of like we're finally seeing these giant conglomerates. They're starting to slim down. They're starting to spin That's off right. businesses. You know, like we're we're covering about that all the time on Mass Device. So, yep. so at least to right, the hope is that. Some of these spinoffs are can act more of like that middle class that, yep. that you know we used to have. Well, you know, what's uh, what's the other famous investment saying? Um, fear is temporary, greed is permanent. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, that's, and, that's and so, true. <laughs> and, and so everybody chases returns, right? I mean, that's that's what you do, right? Everybody chases returns. Big companies chase them as surely as startups do, and and the middle class does, and. What happens is when you're huge, it gets really hard to chase growth, right? If, if you've got, if you're a $100 billion company, I mean, we have $100 billion med tech companies now, and you want to grow your sales, you know, you're looking, you know, that's a, yeah. you need a billion dollar product to move the needle. Um, and there's just not a lot of billion dollar products out there in med tech. So chances are you need a billion dollar business to move in. Anyways, it, there's a trickle down effect that goes with that. And I think eventually management comes to and they say, okay, I just, I can't do this. It, it, you know, it's a law. It now becomes a law of big numbers and, and it becomes unsustainable. And so they start spinning out businesses and they, they get smaller because then mm -hmm. lesser amounts of, of growth register. And so when that starts to happen, they start to splinter and they actually create the middle class. They spin out a lot of companies that that do that. I mean, think about Zimmer itself was a spin out from Bristol Myers, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you you look at now that. Writing about Zimv spinning out of Zimmer Bio. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. then they you know they grow up and then and they access new markets and and do that type of thing, and. And the industry that supports them does the same thing. So when, you know, when I think back 25 years, there were a group of small investment banks, right? There was Robertson Stevens, there was Alex Brown, there was H&Q, and, mm -hmm. and they, they serviced that. There were 
you know, even public exchanges that would do small companies. NASDAQ used to do really small companies. Everything wasn't about being a unicorn. It wasn't wasn't like that. And so the whole system was built to service those types of things. But what you've seen is, is that as the companies got bigger and the exits got bigger, the investment banks got bigger, the mm -hmm. funds got bigger. And so everything's getting bigger. But if, if they start to splinter, you'll see it in other sectors. So I'll be interested to follow it over the next decade. If we see the big companies start to hive off businesses, um, they're smaller size, take them public, then you'll probably see investment banks starting to cater to the middle tier. And then you'll start to see funds that purposely stay small um, and write smaller checks and cater to those. I mean, the industry yeah. will, the, you know, the support industry will move to match it. And we're just at the far end here now where we've gotten everything's big, 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 bigger funds, bigger banks, bigger checks, bigger companies. If it starts to swing back, then you'll see everything around it move with it. You know, I, I thought it was interesting. We, we've heard the argument that we're going to see more private equity investment in the med tech space and i know just enough to get myself in trouble but when you're talking about you know these these middle the, the middle class of these companies yep. and how they were you know assembling all these different technologies into a portfolio to you know raising the value eventually yep. you sell it off you know yep. i mean that that sound kind of sounds like a private equity play in a way and, and private equity was very active in the early 2000s and 2010s doing just that, right? Mm -hmm. wow. they, they would take uh, small companies that had been assembled uh, in a, you know, fairly hodgepodge manner, and then they'd, they'd come in and professionalize them and, you know, streamline them and make the manufacturing more efficient, drive out cost, and, and basically bundle these up for sale. Uh, that was a very popular strategy uh, in in uh in med tech in fact that was ultimately the fate of angiotech private equity came in you know wow. streamed in the business and and uh and moved it on so no the you know that will come again it's tougher to do now you are seeing private equity almost start companies that way um yeah. where they come in and they yeah. they mesh things together right from the beginning uh but we we do seem to have a paucity of of companies to work with there's there's not the same critical mass that there used to be so just to yeah. we, we could we could talk about this for uh for another hour we'll, we'll wait for the next yeah. <laughs> the next linkedin post but i mean you i know you mentor a lot of smaller companies and you know we'll be talking to medtech innovator style companies companies that are raising five million with the hope of yep. getting to the point where you've been what what let's end this let's end this on i hope a positive note what what, yep. what sort of steps and advice would you give to companies that are just starting out and are looking at a, what a, a fairly long role that road that you're sort of painting for them? Yeah, no, I'll end on a positive note. I, I actually, one of the reasons I, I even wrote that in the first place is because I actually think the pendulum swinging back. I, mm -hmm. I imagine if we, yeah. we talk two, three years from now, you know, you'll probably see, you know, smaller funds doing smaller deals, you know, on, single projects again not everything has to be a you know a conglomerate from birth and and so i i actually think that that things are moving in that direction and and that's a lot of fun because it gives you the opportunity to you know run a, a smaller business so what i tell people is is just that you know get started um don't look at the end game 
insight because even what I said today is all generalities. There's exceptions to every rule. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. you've got a good idea, if you've got a program, if you've got something that needs to be done, if you have an idea that's going to solve a medical problem, you know, there are people out there who will fund it um, and go find it. It may take you a little time, but it always does. Go fund it. And the exit will probably appear for you. If it's, you know, if it's a perfect tuck in, fantastic. Somebody's going to go add that to their bag. If it turns out to be a platform technology, mm-hmm. fantastic. Just keep building it and, and see what happens. Uh, you know, you asked me about the industry in the beginning and I'll end there, which is that it is a really great industry for them. Mm-hmm. If if you like to build things and see them through to the goal line, this is the place to be. Um, and, you know, you do get to impact all kinds of of lives. Uh, it was tough not being a doctor, but I do look back and think, all right, well, you know, drug eluding stents and drug eluding balloons have treated millions and millions of people. I, I never could have done that any other way. So, you know, if you've got that idea that you think will will turn into a commercial product that this is the place you can actually do it. That's great. Do you, that's a great way to end and to add a little positivity to it. Yeah. How much mind share do you give to knowing that you helped create something that has saved millions? Is it something that kind of finds its way back into your brain from time to time? Is it a, a warmth you carry with you all the time? How does that, how does that fit into your, your point of view of the world? Um, It's, it's really to, to answer that question, honestly, would take a really long time. Um, <laughs> we'll have you on again for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, a teaser, folks. Yeah, no, I, the, the short answer is that, you know, Angiotech was was fantastic. And, and but it it didn't end all that well for me. Right. My, you know, went down the, the back end. And so I I probably walked away from it initially with more sense of failure than accomplishment. Mm. Um, and. The really amazing thing about Canary is that in a strange way, it, it reframed my earlier career as, as Canary has grown, uh, you know, having done it twice, made it seem less like luck and maybe more by design. And so I actually started to appreciate what had happened before. Um, you know, I got fired from my own startup. That's a incredibly humbling experience. Um, wow. And uh now I can look back on it and, and think about what I've learned and how I've employed that in, in growing Canary and, and doing the different things. And now, actually, I, I do take a lot of satisfaction in that. <clears throat> I think you guys wrote on it when they uh, when Boston Psy got the balloon, the drug eluding balloon approved for instant restenosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that was only about three weeks ago. I mean, we had a yeah. functioning wow. balloon in 1999. Right. I hadn't made wow. that connection. Yeah, we wow. we wrote the we wrote the IP in in 1992 for drug eluding balloons, and so I really i I take a great satisfaction not in having done it. I don't take credit for it, but another favorite saying in science is standing on the shoulders of giants, and and I get a lot of satisfaction of feeling that I move the ball a little mm-hmm. bit. Further yeah. down the field, there are a bunch of people in Boston Psy who did that study and got that balloon approved that I've never met. And I congratulate them for, you know, doing all of that. But I, I take a satisfaction knowing that I played a part in that final end game. And, you know, ultimately that will be where I, I derive the most satisfaction when I when I hang it up. Yeah. Well, well it's great to have your story here. I'm glad. We're, we're all glad you're not a physician, Bill. It's great to have you yeah. here. 
have this role in the medtech industry and uh we'd love to have you back there's some great insights and uh appreciate the the perspective great great it's always a pleasure thank you thanks guys All right, it was great to talk with Bill Hunter of Canary Health. Once again, Bill was at Device Talks West. I'm sure we'll have him at a future Device Talks. And we'll definitely be uh, bringing him back, I think, from time to time on Device Talks Weekly. I always appreciate his insights. Now, let's start the conversation that I had with Blake Richards, the CEO of Elucid. Well, Blake Richards, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Tom. I'm excited to uh, hear about Elucid's story. You folks had some successful financing news earlier this year that I sort of want to delve into as well. And I know you're ramping up for commercialization, and it's always uh, an interesting and exciting time for, for a startup. So before we get into uh, into the company story, though, I'd love to find out about your story. How did you come to be CEO of this company, and how did you find your way into the medtech industry? Yeah, absolutely. So I had originally thought I was going to be in the world of finance for my career, majored in economics and statistics, was always drawn to those aspects. But upon spending a few years in finance, I really didn't feel like I was adding significant value. It was more about capturing value from other clients and and from looking out at the market. And I realized that healthcare offered a great opportunity to combine some of my skill sets, my passion for technology, as well as my passion for mathematics, And I then segmented, I transitioned and joined Epic Systems, which I'm sure you know of is a very large healthcare electronic medical record company out in Wisconsin. And so I spent a little over four years there leading patient confidentiality, revenue cycle management for the organization, working with developers, working with numerous customer sites, managing probably about 150 customers that had confidentiality concerns and needed to have creative workflows designed in order to meet either regulations, meet their own requirements, or meet unique customer scenarios. And so I greatly enjoyed my time there. I realized that healthcare software was my passion, and that is where I wanted to spend my career. So I went back to business school at Columbia. I spent time leading strategy at several healthcare startups all leveraging AI in some capacity, one in the imaging space, and then moved on to become a management consultant, really working with executive leadership at large med device, med tech companies, generally working on their software strategy, but really beyond that as well. And it was during this time that I came into contact with the founder of Elucid, He had spent 30 years leading R&D efforts at large imaging companies. He had been developing innovative new solutions that always had a software element to them, including one that was a billion-dollar success. And so he had had the idea to found Elucid, realizing that there was this gap that had emerged between the available therapeutics to treat cardiovascular disease and the ability for cardiovascular diagnostics to align patients to these treatments. Meaning there was largely this one size fits all approach that was being used to treat cardiovascular disease when that was no longer the case in terms of options physicians had to treat it. So there used to be a few drugs physicians could use. Now there's a dozen or so drugs in a physician's armamentarium, numerous ways to intervene procedurally And he realized 
there had to be a way to bridge this gap. Really, what information could help lead to a more patient-specific treatment pathway? And the concept was that identification of the type and amount of plaque as accurately as possible could help guide physicians with the information needed to make that therapeutic selection. And so he founded Elucid with this goal in mind and had been working on clinical studies for about half a decade and had led to his initial FDA clearance, the first and only product that's able to non-invasively quantify plaque in your arteries as though a pathologist were looking at it under microscope. And this plaque, which is the real driver, the real cause of these adverse events, was now being able to be quantified in an objective, actionable, and interpretable manner for physicians. But the company was very, very small at that point. We had that FDA clearance under our belt and needed a lot of help on the operational side. It had never raised venture capital. And so I joined in about four years ago as CEO. And since that time, we've grown, we've rebuilt the product, we've raised our Series A, Series B, Series C, which we are just speaking of now. And we're in a place where we're ready to launch this next generation of our software that includes plaque and is pending clearance for our FFRCT application. Well, let's talk about the uh, the solution. You did a good job, I think, outlining the problem. And we like to focus on problems and solutions at Device Talks. What is, what is your solution? Maybe talk a bit about plaque IQ. How, do, how does this work? And how is it able to present what a physician would need to normally see with their own eyes? Exactly. So... Plaque, as I spoke of, is the main driver of these adverse events. And if you're looking to assess plaque right now, the tools you would have had available to you, you can have a calcium score, which can quantify calcium accurately, but is not quantifying these high-risk plaque types that are the main drivers of event, types like lipid-rich necrotic core or intraplaque hemorrhage. On the other side, you can use a coronary CTA which is a fantastic tool and has shown through numerous clinical studies to be a superior diagnostic tool and better predictor of adverse event than stress tests and other tests that are available. And so coronary CTA was recently elevated in guidelines to be the only class 1A diagnostic, so highest level of evidence, highest level of recommendation to be used for patients with chest pain. So we see coronary CTA growing significantly over the past few years, and we expect that trend to continue in the U.S. as it has done internationally. But looking at a coronary CTA visually, there are limitations. So first, you're at the mercy of artifacts that come in the scan. You see that there's blooming that occurs in calcification, meaning calcified plaque looks larger than it actually is. It's very dependent on how much contrast is with the patient, and there's only so much that you can do with the human eye. You're really looking at shades of gray. So you can get a directionally accurate assessment, but to get more specific in terms of quantitation is very challenging, very time-consuming, and still has limitations for how far it can go. What we know is that the true ground truth, what you really want to understand is what is the pathology of the plaque. And the way that you can get that is by taking the tissue out of a patient's artery, looking at it under microscope, 
and actually saying where you see plaque types and how much of it is there. Now, obviously, that's completely impossible during clinical care. You would never go take tissue out of a patient's artery. But we realized that using artificial intelligence, we had a means where we could actually estimate the tissue type from a CT scan as though a pathologist were looking at that under a microscope. And so the way we developed this was we took patients who had a CT angiography followed by a procedural intervention in which tissue was removed from the artery. We had that tissue cut up into slices and reviewed under microscope by the leading cardiac pathologist in the world, arguably, Dr. Anu Vermani. We used that to train our algorithms, and then we validated it. We validated our ability to estimate plaque from a CTA versus true histopathology. We did fairly well on this comparison. We were the first technology to be able to do this, and that led to our FDA clearance. So now our software-only product can take a routine CTA and quantify plaque in a manner that emulates what a pathologist would do under microscope with known accuracy, quantifying true tissue types like lipid-rich necrotic core rather than proxies that may not be as specific or prognostic. So you're not requiring another scan. You're taking the images from the scan that's already been performed and running it through your, I'm going to say algorithm because it makes me sound smart, but I'm not sure if that's what you're actually doing through your, your product and your analysis, your analysis platform. You're exactly right, Tom. And so we get to that plaque output that provides information that physicians know informs how likely is a patient to have such an event and additionally can help you track how a patient's responding over time to treatment. Is plaque progressing? Is plaque regressing? Very important information that previously you may have had directionally but now you have actual quantitation, actual specific tissue types that you can then use to guide treatment pathway. Now, from this plaque, we answer an incredibly important question, which is informing patients' risk, informing how they're progressing either positively or negatively to treatment. What we're then able to do is understand what is a patient's ischemia? What is their FFRCT? Now, FFR, fractional flow reserve, is the gold standard measurement used in the cath lab to determine whether or not a patient requires revascularization. So is there a blockage in the artery? If so, you would generally put a stent in. Without using our technology, typically a patient who goes to the cath lab has about a 50% chance of being a true positive that required revascularization meaning half the time that cath lab slot, you're using it as a diagnostic suite where you're simply trying to determine, does this patient actually need a stent? And when it comes out that the patient does not require a stent, that's bad for everybody involved. You put the patient through a potentially risky, unnecessary procedure. You're taking up those limited cath lab slots from patients that actually require revascularization, patients that you can help, and of course, it's economically disincentivized to send patients to the cath lab that aren't moving towards revascularization. So what we're able to do is by taking our plaque quantitation, we derive an estimate of that FFR that you would get invasively, our FFRCT. And by doing this, we can direct patients to the cath lab 
that are much more likely to actually be having a stent put in. So we can avoid 70% of unnecessary procedures, unnecessary trips to the cath lab. And meanwhile, clinical studies have shown that you can increase the percentage of patients going to the cath lab, increase your total number of revascularizations by about 70%. So you're taking the wrong patients out of the cath lab and you're replacing them with the right patients. So as, again, as I mentioned, you're turning the cath lab from a diagnostic suite to an interventional suite. So where does your product find its way into the processes and, and who is your customer and your user? Is it, uh, I don't know if it's a radiologist who performs a coronary CTA or, or, or someone else, but are you selling to those physicians? Are you selling to the cardiologist who is examining the patient or maybe interventionalist, I suppose? Who is using your device, your system? Very, very fair question. So it is both cardiologists and radiologists, and it depends on the site. It depends on uh, the process. It depends on how it's structured. Frequently, it's a cardiologist who is ordering the coronary CT angiography. And in that order, they may say, I would like the coronary CTA. And if appropriate, we'd like to have the elucid analysis performed on it. And so when that CTA is performed, we would then receive an order with that scan. We would process it. We deliver the plaque quantitation. Pending clearance will deliver the FFRCT. And then that'll be interpreted often by the cardiologist who would then make a decision, should this patient go to the cath lab for potential revascularization? If there is high-risk plaque, but the FFR is fine, you may say, I'm going to put this patient on an intensive medical therapy. We're going to closely monitor this patient. We're going to recommend lifestyle changes. Or it may be that the FFR is normal and there is very minimal high-risk plaque, almost none. You may say, okay, I'm going to put this patient on a more general medical therapy, maybe start them on statins. But this allows you to make more specific determinations based on the degree and the type of plaque to help determine which medical therapy may be best. And of course, answers the binary question, does this patient need to go to the cath lab for revascularization, which may not just be impacted by FFRCT. You may have a patient who has a borderline FFRCT and the plaque helps drive the decision-making. If they have high-risk plaque, you may be more likely to intervene. Is there a comp for this sort of tool that would basically is putting itself, I mean, you're asking, you're asking a physician who would otherwise send a patient to a cath lab to get a certain diagnosis, yes or no, that stenting is needed or not. And I agree, it's not only a waste of resources, but the patient's undergoing a procedure they don't need to undergo, and no one wants to undergo even an interventional procedure like that if they don't need to. But is there a comp where you're having an AI software system that is able to confidently tell a cardiologist or any physician, this patient may have needed care before, or you may have thought they needed care before, but they really don't? Because you're putting yourself really right in the middle of the decision process there. I will add some nuance to this, though. We are also sure. finding patients that weren't going to go to the cath lab prior that okay. didn't necessarily meet those standards, but did meet the standard to have a test sent to us for analysis. So it's a big leap to send a patient to the cath lab. And if they have what you might consider lower risk, a moderate stenosis, you might not be sending them to the cath lab. But sending that CT angiography to us for analysis, that's no more a burden on the patient. And we can provide that output that then justifies sending an otherwise moderate risk patient to the cath lab for that intervention. So as I mentioned, 
there was a 70% increase in total revascularizations performed as compared to standard care using a CTA plus FFRCT route. And so that's very interesting. It adds to the fact that this isn't taking patients out of the cath lab. This is putting the right patients in the cath lab. And so we think of it as a more informed decision-making process to know how to triage, how to prioritize, and then how to plan for that procedure. So you're not going in blind. You have a lot of this information ahead of time that can help you identify, okay, what tool might I want to select? Where do I think the stent might go? How long a stent should I use, et cetera? Interesting. So where are you in the, we'll talk about financing and fundraising in a moment because I'd like to explore that. And also some of the folks you have working with you at Elucid or in the management team. I know you brought Wendy Harry on earlier this year. Scott Hunnikins has been involved. So you've got some great names on at, at the company. But talk a bit about preparing for your next step, which is commercialization. Uh, you raised, and again, we'll talk about the fundraising process in a moment, but you raised $80 million for a Series C. You've announced that earlier, did we December yet? November 9th, where we're recording this, I think on November 30th, got to take a look. Yes, November 30th. So you raised, <laughs> earlier this month, you announced the raising of $80 million. How are you preparing for commercialization and what has that process looked like? Is it similar to a medical device process where you're dealing primarily trying to convert the physicians and the surgeons? Are you talking more with hospital administrators to sell them on the notion that you can, you know, ensure that they're, or I guess ASCs or any inter, any interventional place, sell them on the, on the notion that their space will be used more efficiently and more correctly and the right patients will be in there? What's the process been like? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been working with a few dozen sites very closely with our initial versions of the product, iterations of the software, getting great feedback Obviously, the algorithms are very strong. We're getting great feedback on the user experience, user inter interface, uh, and just how it can integrate so seamlessly into the workflow. And we've taken all that feedback and incorporated it into the product, um, having built up our engineering team, having built up our senior leadership, as you spoke of, to the point where we have a product we're incredibly proud of that we're bringing to market. Our main customer who we're really speaking to is that physician champion. So be it a cardiologist or a radiologist, that's where we start. That's where we really get brought into the system. Now, it varies heavily by facility exactly what the process may be to bring that in, who mm -hmm. needs to be spoken to. But that champion is who helps guide us through. And there may be a vac. You, you may end up going towards the CFO. You may be talking to administration. But wherever it is, we're serving the cardiologists and the radiologists who are thusly serving their patients. And that's how we get brought in. From an economic perspective, FFRCT is becoming a category one code on January 1st of next year, which is very exciting. There's generous reimbursement for FFRCT. So it's very economically viable to bring this in along with the benefits that come to the cath lab. Obviously the clinical benefits are first and, and foremost here and helping the patient, but it's very nice to be further supported by the economic benefits that this is profitable. This is a good thing for the facility, and we don't need to do some Excel magic to show the value it's delivering. <laughs> Additionally, our plaque quantitation, which has a Category 3 code, recently received national Medicare payment rate and has kind of burgeoning coverage associated with that as well, which adds even further value and is going to help continue to drive the use of plaque we know plaque is key to physician decision-making 
and the clinical evidence base we're working on and others are working on is continuing to build where we are expecting to see plaque in the next several years be a part of the standard of care. What are you actually selling? What are your customers getting? Are they getting a box? Are they getting a place to send data that you'll be analyzing more of a service-oriented business? What is the product? Yeah, so th- this is a, a SaaS workflow. And so yep. they're sending us a CTN geography very, very securely. We are processing the identified information and delivering them back both a report as well as a fully 3D interactive visualization through a web browser where they can look at the artery, they can make measurements, they can look at the plaque, they'll be able to look at the FFRCT, look at different overlays, make different measurements, anything you can imagine. And this was designed with 20 physicians who do this kind of thing every day. We put it in place to be to get everything you need, but not overcomplicate. And so we're very proud of, of this output and we received some great feedback from early usage. And I'll ask this question and delicately as I can, but you raised $121 million. You're not building a device that's going to be going into hospitals and, and that costs money to create your developing service. How is that money being used to develop this product? And what has the development been like? And I guess, is it more, I, I didn't think developing a software system like this would be as expensive. Where's the expense in developing this? And I'm sure you're using the money well. <laughs> Just, I thought there would be a box, but it's, it's more of a, it's more of a Yeah, service. so the clinical studies to go about developing oh, sure. a software that is validated against histology. There are simpler ways to quantify plaque. You could look at it compared to a physician assessment. You could use some more basic assessment tools but actually prospectively capturing tissue from live patients and going through this process. And we've done this multiple times to further improve the accuracy. That is an expensive and time-consuming process. This is a process Mm -hmm. we've invented for the pharmacist because we're the first ones doing this, uh, significant IP protecting this from a non-invasive means. Now, there are invasive tools that can do this, but obviously non-invasive offers the opportunity to perform this on many, many more patients and to do it before going into the cath lab. So that is, of course, a very significant expense. There's a lot of expense on the tech side of building a software product that is this usable, that is this visually appealing, that is able to do all this as efficiently as as it can be. Now, with this additional raise, It's towards commercialization primarily. That's where much of the funding will go. But there is a lot on our pipeline. There's a lot of new products, things that we we can't talk about as much here, but that are going to really add differentiated value in a way that we think only we can based on the approach that we're taking, based on histologically validated plaque that will further help direct patients to optimal treatment specific to them and allow it to be used on more patients than it is being today. And so I would say most of it is on the commercial side, but our tech and our clinical team are continuing to do a very significant amount of meaningful work that's gonna help bring this towards the standard of care and add value and helping make better decisions for patients. And let's talk a bit about the fundraising. You raised, uh, as you said, $80 million, Series C, uh, led by, is it Elevage? Elevage. Am I saying that right? Elevage Medical Technologies. And you also said industry strategics and existing investors. I, I'm sure you're not going to tell me who the strategics were, but are they medical device companies? Are they tech companies? Are they a mix of both? Can you identify the, the industries that they're in? Sure. So they are all in the healthcare space. And so they are all relevant to what we are doing here. And so we're excited to have their participation in the round. 
Elevage is a fantastic group. So Evan Melrose led the deal and Dr. Melrose, mm-hmm. CEO of Elevage. Elevage is a fund within Patient Square Capital that's focused on earlier stage med device. And final question, and, I, and it's a bit of a repeat, but we've seen other tech-oriented companies that had systems that seemed to fit hospital needs and they didn't fit as well as they thought and they, and they didn't get the financing they needed to move forward. I would like you to talk about just sort of the, the atmosphere for new clinical tools, new software like this, and how it's being received by hospitals. Is there a desire for new tools like this? Are you facing exhausted administrators and, and surgeons who are like, oh, another AI tool, like I don't need it? What is the atmosphere like? Is it a challenge? And if so, how, how do you overcome that challenge? Yeah, so we haven't been facing that challenge. And I'll explain why. There's a, there's a few core differentiators in, in what we have versus maybe some other technologies that, that are out there. And obviously, we're not the only ones. But what we're providing in terms of information, it's things physicians know and they understand. It's what they were taught in medical school. So plaque. They already understand plaque. They understood lipid-rich necrotic core, these true tissue types. We're providing a better means and a simpler, more accurate means to assess this non-invasively. So we're not teaching them something new. We're providing them information that they know is valuable and providing it just in a more convenient, more accurate, non-invasive manner. Similar to FFRCT. They already know what FFR is. They know it's measured invasively. They know the value it has in determining whether or not a patient needs a stent. But we're able to measure that from a non-invasive CT scan. And so they know that this is actionable information that they can use to make a treatment decision. CTA is in guidelines. FFRCT was included in those same AHA, ACC chest pain guidelines. Over 100 times, I believe it's written. Plaque is in CADRAD's guidelines. All these things are information physicians know is powerful. We're providing it in an easier manner. Additionally, as I said before, there is significant reimbursement supporting this. This is not something where you're going to be spending and not receiving any reimbursement and hope to be making it up downstream through some other process. You will be making more downstream. That is helpful, but there's direct reimbursement. Physicians want to do the best possible thing they can for their patient, hands down. But it makes it challenging sometimes if they would have to lose money to do that. And that's not the case here. And so we fit right within the workflow, exactly within the workflow. It's no extra work for them. They're getting information that they understand and it's actionable and the reimbursement aligns with that. And I think if you have all of those factors together, you're in a very, very positive position for significant adoption from sites. And that's what we're seeing. That's the interest we're, we're seeing. So I, I wouldn't necessarily group us into some of those other categories. I think a lot of people want to get into this position where it's actionable, reimbursed, and fits within the workflow. And I think all three of those are key. Good points all around. All right, great. Well, Blake Richards, thanks for sharing Lucid Story on the podcast. And thanks for joining great us. Great to be here, Tom. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Please subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you don't miss a future episode of this podcast and our many other podcasts, including our new MedTech Women Talks podcast, which Kayleen Brown launched recently, as well as AI Meets Life Sci podcast, which Kayleen put together with our farmer editor, Brian Bunce. You can catch those as well as Striker Talks, Intuitive Talks, Abbott Talks, 
and all the rest on the Device Talks Podcast Network. Subscribe and uh, please make sure you share this episode on LinkedIn and uh, would love to be part of those conversations. So connect with me and Chris Newmarker on LinkedIn as well. That's it. Once again, we'll have one more episode of Device Talks Weekly Podcast for 2023 next week. And uh, we'll have our final Device Talks Tuesdays episode on Tuesday. Great episode brought to you by Resonetics about night and all. Don't miss that. And uh, thanks for joining us on the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thank you.